This is the Movies of 1999. I'm Jason Hutchins. And I'm Craig Talbot. And this week we are going to be reviewing Princess Mononoke. This is our first proper episode, but what I should point out is we haven't had the movie night yet. That will be happening at the end of this episode. So last week we selected Princess Mononoke as our first movie to review, mostly because it wasn't on my list. I didn't add it to my list on a technicality because the movie itself was released in 1997 in Japan and it was only in 1999 that it was released in the US with an English dub. And I think I kind of peer pressured you into having a Studio Ghibli movie if I recall correctly because I was fairly determined that there had to be at least one Studio Ghibli movie in your list but there didn't actually there wasn't actually one released in 1999 technically though princess mononoke comes pretty close yeah i think my a list and b list are very focused on hollywood movies there's a couple of australian movies there but i haven't looked too much at international cinema but it was nice that princess mononoke was released on cinema screens in the u.s in 1999 and in fact roger ebert um has it in his top 10 list for the movies of 1999 and that i think gives it some legitimate as, as a 1999 movie. Before we get started talking about Princess Mononoke, I just wanted to do a bit of housekeeping. So at the end of this episode, we are going to cut live to the movie night where we will be spinning the bingo ball for the first time to find out which of the 52 movies we'll be reviewing in next week's episode. The other thing I wanted to mention is a couple of resources I've discovered. It turns out there's two other podcasts where people talk about movies from 1999. One is called 1999 The Podcast and the other is called 1999 The Year That Rock Cinema. And I'll put links to those in the show notes, as well as a link to the book that I mentioned last week, which is called Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen by Brian Raftery. And if you've been listening to our show, you would have heard Margaret and David talking over the end credits. They are both movie reviewers that were on Australian television for 28 years, and I've discovered a big trove of their reviews on Letterboxd. And speaking of Letterboxd, I'll be putting up all of the movies that we talk about week by week. I'll be putting them up on Letterboxd as well, so I'll add the link to that in the show notes. Now, Craig, because I discovered this trove of reviews, like during the week that's just gone, I actually found out that there were more movies from 1999 that I wanted to add to my A-list. Ah. And I've been maintaining this spreadsheet for over 12 months now. So right at the 11th hour, I've had to go and add some more movies to the A-list, which means some of the movies from the A-list got bumped to the B-list, and that bumped some movies to the F-list. And some movies from the F-list have been just bumped and disappeared into oblivion. But one movie managed to jump in the opposite direction, based on our conversation last week. So one movie got promoted from the F-list. And we'll get to that when, when we get to it. I look forward to finding out which one that is. But I tell you what, I have had enough of editing Excel spreadsheets. It feels too much like my job. So so hopefully it's set Uh, in stone now. As someone who did that as a job for uh, about 10 years, I can sympathise. 
That's uh, that's really interesting that you've changed the list. Uh, do do you think we have you have to get to a point though where you say enough's enough? I reckon the first movie night is the point of no return. As soon as we spin spin that bingo ball and find out what movie we're going to be talking about next week, that will lock the list down. Well, we'll be committed because we'll have started doing a podcast about the actual movie night. Without further ado, let's uh, start talking about Princess Mononoke. What did you think? Um, I have watched Princess Mononoke in the past, and I'm going to trip over the word Mononoke for the entire podcast, I'm pretty sure. I watched it many, many years ago, and I I liked it. I had never watched the dubbed version before. One thing I can definitely say about um, Princess Mononoke is that it's worth listening to both its sub and its dubbed forms. I think this is one of those very few dubs that I've ever watched where it's sympathetic to the story. I've put in my notes here, it's notable by not being notable. You don't really notice the dub. The casting for the, for the dub was done extremely well, and there's some really big names in there. You've got Gillian uh, Anderson and a few other people as well who are pretty well-known. Yeah, I think for me, um, um, Mini Driver was a really... A real highlight. I thought her voice acting was superb. And Billy Crudup as well. I think I only knew him from Dr. Manhattan. Right. And yep. he was also the son in Big Fish. Often these guys who are used for voice acting, they're not, they're not all, their voices are more well known than they themselves, you know, their faces, I guess. And, and um, as I was watching it, I kind of wondered why the movie is called Princess One and OK. I wondered why he shows that name for the film for me this this film is a little bit unusual in uh, Miyazaki's movies in that the main character is a young man whereas in a lot of his other movies it's a female character the strong female character who is the lead whereas in this movie uh, Prince Ashitaka to me, is the driving character in in this movie. I don't know how you felt about it, Jason. Oh, oh, for sure. He's the character that ties together the story. Um, there's all these different warring groups. I think there's perhaps three different tribes of humans, and then there's all these separate tribes of animals as well, and he communicates amongst all of them. I do believe that there were two possible English titles, and one of them was um, the saga of Prince Ashitaka or something like that. Oh, okay. Okay. So Prince Ashitaka is central to this movie. He he drives the story all the way through. The princess is very important. She's a big part of the prince's journey. And certainly in the latter part of the movie, she's the reason why he does a lot of what he does, I feel. Mm, she so, saves, she yeah. saves his life, for example. So yeah, I think that kind of awakened her humanity. You think so? When when he presents her with the necklace, yeah, she becomes a human in in that moment. Yeah, because I wasn't sure if the princess really returned his love. Certainly for most of the movie, because you know she sees herself so strongly as a wolf and 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 not as a human being, and she's very much against the human being. Her whole motivation in life is to get rid of the human beings because she feels they're destroying her fellow creatures and her home. I didn't think that romance was a strong motivator for her. She was a more complex character than that, whereas Prince Ashitaka definitely had that. You know, he was struggling with the the hate that was sort of built into his arm, mm. and he's tr- he was trying to reach consensus with everybody. You know, you know what I mean. Like he was trying to get everybody on side, and I think 
in one point of the movie, he even says, you know, you know, why like something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing, why are we fighting? We should all be trying mm. to. He was trying to see with eyes unclouded by hate, I think was the line. Yeah. But this yes. representation of hate and anger as, as these like writhing worm creatures that are stuck on his arm that also give him power in some way, like like when he when he shoots his bow and arrow and beheads uh, people yeah. and things like that. So this anger is giving him this power, but it's also clouding his judgment or it's in danger of clouding his judgment because that's what happened to the boar. Yeah. It, it became a demon, you know, when it was completely uh, overwhelmed by hate. So, so I think that representation of the, the emotions, you know, as like an external um, creature that's, that's was right. very it's, interesting. It's like um, Miyazaki wanted a visual way of showing what people were feeling. Miyazaki uses that very strongly in this movie. Like he's obviously a master storyteller, so he knows how to do that really, really well. It's interesting um, in the American or English version, there was a bit of controversy the movie studio, they wanted to cut it down to 90 minutes. Now, I, I don't know how you would have done that. And apparently uh, Neil Gaiman, who we've mentioned before in the podcast, was hired to cut down and simplify the story. But Miyazaki obviously wanted nothing of any uh, changes to the movie and he refused to allow them to cut the movie. And he sent a samurai sword to the American studio as a gift and he had a note on it saying, no cuts. Mm. <laughs> I kind of get the American point of view. Maybe it's a difference between the Japanese point of view. This is one of those movies where I think the Japanese mindset is demonstrated really clearly. Like it's very much a Japanese movie. Does that make sense? For sure, for sure. Because you have these gods of the forest. There's the forest spirit, mm. but also the boar god and the wolf god and things like that. This is something that's not familiar to us in the West. It's not part of our upbringing or our culture. But I think the no. Japanese audience would have an understanding um, before they went into the movie of, you know, where the story was going. Yeah, I believe um, some of that, the idea of these different gods, um, that, that harks back to this, uh, the Japanese beliefs and ideas around Shintoism. So Shinto has this idea of small gods everywhere. You're right there, the Japanese would be very familiar with that because they would have grown up with that. I can understand why, from an American perspective, they would have looked at it and gone, hey, maybe we can cut some of this out because it mm. doesn't really make any, any sense. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and I really felt when this movie came out that it was broadening the audience for this, for, for anime. Um, it was really yep. introducing uh, anime for the first time to a mainstream audience. The fact that Miyazaki pushed back and didn't allow any cuts, the, that idea of the director pushing back against the studio, I think that that's, something that's very familiar um, when you look at movies that were released in 1999 because a lot of the directors did push back against the studio and, and make their own vision, you know, without very much studio interference. And I think that's something that we'll be discovering as we go along. And I wonder if that's something that's been lost since. That is a whole nother soapbox. That, <laughs> yes, that, that is. But, <laughs> yeah. they, but, you know, you look at the Marvel movies and things like that, it's almost like they're, they're designed by the fans rather than by the... I, th I think it's almost designed by the algorithm because these streaming services can see exactly the behaviour of the audience. Yeah, And, and they basically true. design these things. They're just designing for audience retention. It's exactly what happens on YouTube. And, and I think it has destroyed a lot of the cinema that we enjoyed back in 1999. We don't see those sorts of movies anymore. 
I thought I found this idea of men wanting, you know, like not what well, actually it's not a man, is it? Because it's actually another princess, uh, Lady Yabushi. Um, Yabushi, that's right. She's doing all this mining. She's making guns, but she's also doing it with the reason of supporting people who have leprosy, which I'm sure in medieval Japan, as in many other places, was a very difficult thing. Like people just didn't look after those people. You know, it almost harks back to the Bible in that sense, in where where Jesus, uh, you know, looks after the the lepers. Not to mention the the women that she's um, paid for to uh, take them out of sort of servitude in the brothels. Yes, no, that's right. And, yes, and provide so. food and shelter and, and work for them. When, and that they're all very happy and, and defend her to the death. The humans in the story are just sort of trying to make their, their own way in the world and, and they're doing what they're doing to have a good life and the animals obviously see it very differently. Um, I think this is a, a theme. I mean, obviously, as human beings, we've... Uh, We've taken over the environment from an animal's point of view. We're probably not the most uh, wonderful thing to ever happen, but it, it's it's not a simple movie in that sense. In that there's no in some other movies there's often you know like um, the classic example I just comes to my head is Snow White. There's a there's a bunch of good characters and there's an evil character. In this movie, it's not that simple, is it? Mm. There's everyone has a reason for doing what they're doing. No one's. No one's uh, going out to be evil. On the one hand, there's these people trying to do their thing and they've got a good side to them, you know, and then there's the animals and the boar. In, in, in some ways, actually, the boar come off as the most unreasonable characters in the movie because they refuse to change their point of view at all. There is one way. There is the way of the boar, and that's that's yes, it, yes, really. there exactly. And Ashitaka is trying to resolve that conflict, but it's beyond him to do so. And I think that's why the ending of this movie is so shocking. My daughter gasped when the forest spirit was beheaded by Lady Obushi when she shot her rifle right at the end of the right. movie, because yep. there were all these Hollywood style. So she was yep. raising her rifle, but then Prince Ashitaka threw his sword through her rifle to stop stop yeah. her from shooting. And then she recovered from that, raised the rifle again, and the forest spirit started to turn her rifle back into a tree branch. You know, it started sprouting leaves. Yeah. Yeah. So she, she had these two setbacks. And from a Hollywood or a Disney movie point of view, that would have been the turning point of the story. Yes. But that's not yes. what happened. She had a third attempt and then shot the head off the forest spirit. That's right, and it, it, it is a complex story in that sense. And mm. I, I kind of can understand why he took two and a half, two, what is it, nearly, nearly three hours to tell the story. Mm. I, I did find it hard to watch in one sitting. It was a, it was a very long movie to watch and a very long movie to um, stay focused on, I think. I guess um, we're kind of spoiled these days because it, so many stories are cut down to like this one hour length and that's exactly how we watched it we watched this movie over two evenings and and i didn't really have the same experience as you did i think for that reason but just to go back to how the movie ends or or that moment where the forest spirit is decapitated i mean that's very symbolic because she's she's shooting a ball of iron to basically Mm -hmm. destroy this this old god but then what happens is the god manages to get his head back and then eventually just crumbles and 
flowers spring up from the yes. land where he fell. Yes. And I think right at the end of the movie, what, what do you call these little guys with their shaky heads, like a forest sprite or something the, like that? The forest sprite. So there were thousands of them um, during the scene where Prince Ashitaka is being taken back to the forest to heal. Right at the end, they've all gone except one little guy reappears, just to let you know that they're still there. And, and that's kind of what happened to this Japanese myth of the, the forest gods. You know, when industrialization happened, the forest became less of a mysterious place, but yeah. you can still go back and, you know, worship the, the, the spirit of the forest or, or just recognize yeah. that all of nature represents the body of this, this god who, who no longer exists. I, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think Japan's an interesting country because we often think of it as a very, you know, like a city. And, and and the reality is that, you know, a large part of the population lives in Tokyo, which is, you know, well known as the largest city in the world. Outside of that massive city or most big cities in Japan, there's still a lot of forests and nature. You know, Japan is actually facing a problem where there are all of the young people move to Tokyo. Everyone lives in or around Tokyo. And in lots of parts of the, the rest of the country, there are abandoned houses and abandoned villages. And in a sense, nature is taking Japan back. Now, just to go back to the beginning of the movie, what did you think of the animation and that opening action sequence? It kind of felt very familiar to me, that, that first part of the movie. Mm because it felt more like other, uh, shall I say, Miyazaki movies that I've watched. It kind of felt a bit like some of those. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like, oh, and you kind of get yourself ready for, oh, now we're going to go on a journey with this character. Yep. You know? like, and the, the film is going to be about the journey. But it wasn't really about the journey. Did you find that bit a little bit discordant where the, the head of the village turns around to him and goes, you have to walk out of this door, you have to go do this thing, but if you walk out of this door, we can never talk to you ever yeah, again. Yeah. I think that's something that that's lost on us, especially with the English dub, and it would be a lot more yeah. familiar to a Japanese audience, the idea of cutting the hair and, and then being sent out uh, never to return. Yeah, it's it's uh, this is probably a movie where even though it was released in other countries and it was extremely popular all over the world and it, and it is loved by many, you know, Western people, it is... Nonetheless, a very Japanese movie. Mm, mm. I, I think there's probably a whole layer of understanding that um, you and I will never have because we don't have that uh, cultural history. You know, we don't have that uh, understanding of Japanese culture, even though, you know, both of us have probably been interested in Japanese culture for a, a big part of our lives. I know I certainly have. Yeah, and and it, it was super successful in Japan. I think it was the number one movie of all time. Mm. Um, but in the US, it wasn't so successful, and definitely not in theatres. And I don't no. think it was until it was released on DVD where it started to pick up because a lot of people yeah. bought the DVD. And I wonder if that's part because of the time. I mean, you and I were there at that time in 1996, 1997, 80, 98, whatever, we were, we were anime watchers at the time. And I think part of the reason why it wouldn't have been quite as popular is because it was much, much harder to access. You and I know what we had to do in order to access anime back then 
as you will recall, we had to go on a Sunday. Was it a Sunday night that we went to UWA and watched anime? And this is probably one of the first movies to be dubbed in English professionally because a lot of the stuff that we watched was actually dubbed by people, you know, fans and that sort of well, thing. So it was usually pretty bad fan subs. And I know yeah. that there were even movies we went to see or, or TV shows that we went to see where there weren't even subtitles. They would just give you a, a one-page printout of the general gist of the story. Yeah. And then you sat there and tried to figure out what was going on. But, but yeah. that, that was almost yeah. part of the fun, I think. But Yes, no, no, it was. I mean, this, this movie is... Would you say it's kind of a breakthrough movie for Japanese animated cinema in, in the West? Yeah, it, it certainly felt like that to me at the time when I was watching it. Yeah. And, and I think in retrospect, yeah, it was one of those first breakout movies. I think people discovered this movie before they discovered the rest of the Studio Ghibli back catalogue. Yes. The only other movie I can think of which was really influential at the time was Akira, of course, mm. which is well, probably the greatest animated movie that was late 80s ever. i think wasn't it but that that was that was much earlier was that was that the was that much earlier was it or i think was it, it was I the late was 80s around... i think it was 88 or 89 right. or something okay. yeah i'm scared to say i'm scared to say too much for the fear of getting it wrong but oh, i'm we... sure our audience will be kind <laughs> to us <laughs> and, we're uh, wrong all uh, the time uh, but confidently wrong yeah I, I look i do remember watching akira with both yourself and david i, I thought around that time but it could have been released much earlier. Mm. The Back to this movie, the way it's animated, I mean, we kind of take the quality of the animation for granted now, I think, mm. but this was quite outstanding at the time. The The quality of the the artwork, I mean, it must have, the amount of work yeah. that must have gone into this tourna, tour, two hours and 45 minute movie, like it's beautifully drawn. Well, most of it's hand the, painted, yes. and That's that's right. It's, it, like the amount of work like there wouldn't be, I don't think they would have used any computer generated imagery back then no no they did yeah. there, there was some CGI so in the opening sequence when Prince Ashitaka is on his red elk the mount that he rides with his bow and arrow yes. shooting backwards at the approaching boar that's covered with all of, all of these worms a lot of that was computer generated but done in a way okay. that really evokes the hand-drawn style and yeah. and i believe the writhing worms on his arm were like he was all hand painted and everything like that but the writhing yeah. worms were added with cgi as well just just little okay. details like that would that right. would have been hard to animate i remember there's a section where he bends one of the soldiers sword mm. and the the worms are kind of translucent right that, um, that was a bit more yeah. obvious as well yeah, I, that looks like that was CGI. It's hard. It's hard in twenty twenty three to look at a movie with nineteen ninety seven or nineteen ninety nine eyes because that CGI stuff would have been more obvious to us back then. Mm. I think. Well, well, it it doesn't stand out as much as you'd think it would in retrospect. I think I think the moment for no. me that where it was really obvious is when the demon spirit leaves the boar's the dying boar's body and it kind of morphs. There's like a very obvious morph between the boar and then like the decomposing skeleton of the boar. And that really looked like a late nineties morph that you might um, see in music videos and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was a little bit clunky, wasn't it? Or I looked a little bit, it looked a little bit clunky. But, but in um, terms of the animation, there was one sequence when they go into the, I mean, this fortress that, that Lady Yoboshi has built to smelt iron and things like that. Town. Yeah. 
And there was one sequence, and with animation, you quite often have different layers, different parallax layers, um, and you might sort of be showing, uh, you know, a, a countryside scene where the foreground is moving by more swiftly than the background. But there's a sequence there where they do that layered style, but they're panning through, you know, this fortress. And in yes, each I of the, the bit you're talking about. In each of the layers, there are like many animated characters going about their daily lives. And it's like, how the yes. hell did they do? <laughs> yeah. How the hell did oh. they make that work? It's so impressive. I, I reckon. I reckon. Uh, I reckon his animators probably must have. They, they they must have either feared him or loved him because the amount of work. There's no like I can't think of any scenes that were like really simple. Even the forest scenes and things like that. There's so much. There's always things going on in the background as well. And and I think that that's really what makes these movies stand out because they pay attention to little details where it it yes. might be a lot of effort in animation to to make that detail happen, but it just adds a realism to the world. Um, I know that when Neil Gaiman was brought in, they flew him over to the States to watch the Japanese version of the movie before he decided whether or not he was going to take on the job. And that moment where towards the end of the movie where it starts raining and they just focus on some rocks on the ground and like a raindrop hits a rock and then another yeah. raindrop hits a rock. And then it yeah. starts raining and the rocks gradually get wet and, and water starts streaming over them. Just that detail impressed him so much. And he realized at that point that this is cinema. This is not just a Disney movie. Also, I, I, I come back to that scene with the, with the little forest sprite, you know, the ones with the wobbly heads. Mm. And in one scene, there's like, I don't know, a thousand of them or something. It looks like a thousand. Like every single one of them is wobbling their head in a different way. They're mm. all moving in a different way and it's like it would have been really easy at that point just to sort of have them all moving in sync, in sync mm, or something mm. like that but they're not they, they're, they each have their own character little, yeah they each have their own character each of them and I, I remember seeing that and going wow he's really put a lot of effort in like they've really put a lot of effort in here like that i can see how one of the most often comments you see about this movie is that it's visually stunning and um i can see why uh, uh, people feel that way about it. Mm. it is, look, we're used to this idea of uh, Japanese animation being more uh, aimed at adults and more appropriate mm. for adults and being more serious and all that. Kind of, and I think that's an understanding that people in the West now have. But I think at, at, you're right. At the time, people wouldn't have thought that way about anime. You know, like Jap the Japanese anime that people would have seen. Uh, I think there was a little bit on TV. I'm trying to remember what the TV series was. What's the, what's the one called? The one with Spaceship Yamamoto or, or something like yes, that? Yes, I remember that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Battleship Yamamoto That's right. um, anime series. Yeah. I mean, that was only available. I be interesting to go back and watch that one again. I, I, I remember watching oh, you, that. Oh, you definitely should. And, and I have gone back and rewatched yeah. the original. And then there, there was also a remake from 2019 or something that's also worth watching. So, oh, okay. Right. So the, but as always, there's just so much content out there. We'll never get through it all. <laughs> yes, that's right. When I watched the movie this time around, I, I enjoyed the movie, but I did find it very long. But I, I, I guess as I'm talking to you, I'm coming around to the view that, hey, maybe this movie was a lot better than I mm. originally thought it was. It's it's probably one of those movies where I, I wonder if it would have worked better in a movie theatre, seeing it in a movie theatre. I don't mm. know that I ever did. Like that movie that you and I watched 
with our friends recently, the Godzilla movie. Godzilla minus one. Sorry, minus one. That's right. I mean, I think that definitely comes across in the movie theatre. I don't know. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't probably come across as well on television. No, no. Come across as, and I think uh, the audio is probably a big component of that as well. Yeah, it probably. If I was to watch that on TV, it would probably come across much more soapy than it than it did in Mm. the movie theatre. Yeah. And speaking of um, audio, we we loved the score in Princess Mononoke as well. The music was so well done. Well, there were, you know, I think a testament to Studio Ghibli movies is that there are entire YouTube channels where you can listen to um, people playing <laughs> Studio <Yes>. Ghibli movies, <laughs> mu- music, movie music, and, and you can listen to them for hours. Well, well just They're to indicate easy how, to listen to. Just to indicate how mainstream it is these days, we walked into my wife's Christmas party, which was held at the State Theatre, and they right. had a string quartet at the Christmas party, and that's all they played. They just played Studio Ghibli after Studio Ghibli, like going through the whole pack, back catalogue. I'm not sure how many people there realised what they were listening to, but it was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, yeah, look, there'd be... There's lots of fans. The music is beautiful. So I think we should probably start reeling this one in. Is there anything you mm. wanted to mention in conclusion or have we covered everything that you wanted to talk about? Um, I, think we've, I think we've covered everything. I mean, it's one of those movies you could probably talk about for ages. It's a movie that's loved by critics. It's, it's got like some ridiculous score on Rotten Tomatoes. I, uh, I had a look at it earlier and it's got a 93% score on the uh, tomato meter and a 94% score audience score, um, which I can't imagine is very common. No, actually, no, it would be a rare example of the audience and critics agreeing. I don't think we see that very much. Look, it, it's a movie that um, it, it bears watching. I think I, I question whether, I mean, I watched Citizen Kane the other day, which is considered to be the greatest piece of Hollywood cinema ever, is often quoted as that. It kind of stuck in my head for a while, mm. and and I couldn't get scenes and stuff out about it out of my head. It, it, it's it's a different experience in twenty twenty three, and I and I think uh, this movie is a little bit like that. I can understand it's got parts to it where you look at it and go, "This is where this is where other movies got this mm, from." Totally, you know, like. This is a movie that other filmmakers have clearly used as an inspiration. Yeah, totally. And, and one really good example of that is James Cameron um, with his Avatar mm. movie. He cites yes. Princess Mononoke as uh, one of the big influences. So. Yes. In fact, you could say that uh, Avatar is very heavily influenced by this mm. movie. The, the themes in Avatar are very, very similar. Mm. It's, a very, it's a different movie. It's its own movie. But... It is definitely. I, I'm. I'm glad James Cameron actually said that. I didn't know that actually, but I can understand why that they are quite similar movies in their uh, in that sense, in in their themes and in the in the way they're presented. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, so I guess my final parting words is just going back to the dubbing. I I really liked the Neil Gaiman script. I think he did a great job at respecting the story while bringing it to an American audience. I know he struggled with it because he Mm. wrote it uh, to to match the mouth movements of the characters. And that was something that I was looking for on the second rewatch. And it is so well done. And apparently it matches 
even better than the original Japanese dialogue, but he wrote syllable by syllable. So, so oh, okay. he would have an idea of what he wanted to write and he would have to reword yeah. it and reword it so that the syllables matched what the animation was doing. And I don't think right. anybody goes to that effort with a dub. Well, and, yeah. But, I mean, as a result, he said he's never going to do a project like this ever again. <laughs> so, yeah, I can, ima- I can imagine because it, it is probably the best. Uh, look, knowing what you said now, I didn't actually know that before. Um, knowing what you said now, I can understand why. Like, I didn't notice that it was dubbed, mm-hmm. to be honest. Yep. Watching the dubbed version, I didn't notice that it was dubbed. It, it, you know, I, in a lot of uh, Japanese movies that we've watched, you notice you notice the jarring difference between the dub and the uh, and the and the Japanese version. But in this one, I didn't notice the dub. So it, it's obviously he's obviously put an enormous amount of work into it. Um, the actors that performed the voices have done a really really good job, and I, I wonder how much influence he had over them. Um, yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a very well done movie for for an English audience mm. as well as a Japanese. Yeah, and I have one more story to tell about it, <laughs> just to tie a bow on this episode, and and we can sort of leave it behind us. Just a story that I found very interesting because Disney got the rights to all of the Studio Ghibli movies for U.S. distribution, apart from uh, Lupin the Third. Obviously, most of the Studio Ghibli movies are Disney family films. Princess mm. Mononoke would be an outlier. So it didn't go mm. to Disney. Um, it went to a subsidiary of Disney, which was Miramax. And Miramax oh, okay. are known for producing some other big movies from the 90s, like Pulp, Pulp Fiction, a lot of the Tarantino yeah. movies, things like that. So they were a Disney subsidiary. I think Disney bought them in the early 90s. Unfortunately, last week we were talking about cancelled people. And one of the guys that ran Miramax has been cancelled big time. He's in prison. He was convicted. So I'm only going to call him inmate number 20B0584. Well, he he was the guy who Miyazaki sent the sword to. That's right. And, uh, yeah. But the story with the dubbing is that he went to Tarantino. Okay. Because he he was close with Tarantino, had produced a lot of his movies, and said, Quentin, can you do the dubbed version, please, for for us? And it was Tarantino that said, you don't want me, you want Neil Gaiman. So that's how Gaiman became involved. So I thought that was pretty interesting as well. That that, right. that it was a referral from Tarantino of all people. So okay. it just no, right. it just goes to show how much pop culture he was across to be aware yeah, of Neil yeah. Gaiman and to, yeah. Well, I mean Tarantino clearly heavily uh, heavily um, influenced by pop culture. Yeah, totally. In so much of what he does. So let's leave it there. Um, Princess Mononoke. Mm. We watched it. We reviewed it. Yeah. We thought it was great. Mm. We. I don't think we yeah. I don't think we're giving review scores. I, I think that would feel a bit wrong. No, no, that's okay. Um, yeah. For me, it's an A-list movie, so that's all I say. I think now, maybe we'll cut live to the beginning of our very first movie night and find out what movie we're going to be reviewing this time next week. So I'll hand over to future Jason to spin the bingo ball and choose a number at random. So let's go and do that now. Okay, thank you. We're, we're now live at the first movie night where my assistant Dana is spinning the bingo ball. So mix them up, mix them up well. And the ball's out. What number is it? 
with number 23. Number 23, come in, spinner. Number 23 is a simple plan. Hey! <laughs> Look at this. It's like we found lost treasure. We're like Robin Hood. You want to keep it? Sometimes good people do evil things. Part of that is my money. Like there's two sides now. You're my brother. Bill Paxton. You gotta make this look like it was an accident. Billy Bob Thornton. What do I get? Bridget Fonda. He's gonna shoot you off. From the New York Times best-selling novel. A simple plan. I wish somebody else had found that money. Sorry, the B movie for a simple plan is Toy Story 2. <laughs> Howdy, howdy, folks! It's good to be back! Greetings! Wait, 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 wait! Stop the film! Is he in this too? Excuse me, Polestring Boy. What would Toy Story 2 be without Buzz Lightyear? A good movie. Okay, so that's the movie we'll be reviewing next week. Um, so I'll see you then, Craig. Yep, looking forward to uh, reviewing th that movie uh, in the future, <laughs> so, which Whatever I'm not allowed to say be. what it is. Yeah, what will it be? I'm, I'm actually really, uh, I'm really looking forward to our first movie night. I think that it's uh, going to be a bit of fun, so that's good. Yeah, I've had a few people say that they're not coming unless they know what the movie is going to be, but I've just told them that you can turn up and leave after the first five minutes if you don't like <laughs> What the bingo yeah. machine selects, but we I, have I to trust the bingo machine. Yeah, we have to trust the bingo machine. I, I am looking forward to seeing what the first movie is. Hopefully, I mean, look, it's on your A list. It's got to be a pretty. It's got to be a pretty decent one, doesn't it? So, oh, decent or weird, uh, it'll be one of the two. Right, looking forward to it. All right, thank you, thank you, Jason. Thank you, listeners, for if you got this far, well done. <laughs> okay, we'll see you all next week, and I'll leave the final word to Margaret and David. And now for the bit you've all been waiting for. It's blooper time. I have a feeling I'm not going to have a great day today. And the classic this week is... Sorry, I messed up. <laughs> I'm just trying to react the way I did before. <laughs> Shush. I do it to irritate you. I know, so stop it. Why? Can we do it again? Oh, no, come on, guys. I've worn these a zillion times before. On screen. <laughs> And I no, don't want to make excuses. Well, don't make excuses. Well, but I'm going to. Okay. <laughs> Have you laid an egg? <laughs> <laughs>